hello. Welcome back to Honor of Kings. This is episode two. I'm Sean Griffin, and this is my co-host with me. Ken Eiderbrecht. Hello, guys. Hey, Ken. Welcome back, man. Uh, it's good to see you again. How are you doing this week? It's good to see you too, man. I'm doing pretty good. It's been a good week of uh, going through these chapters that we're going to be talking about in this episode, and they are just packed, man. They are packed with some gold. We're going to get some good conversations going. Yeah, I know last week we left off at the end of chapter six, and this week we're going to jump right in with chapter seven, where you know we just were introduced to the bad guys of the storyline last time, right? We had these uh, these angels called Watchers that rebelled, and uh, they were coming to take wives. This is what parallel with Genesis six, and, and so we we're going to jump into Genesis or excuse me Enoch seven and start off looking at some of the behavior of these Watchers and what they were doing. It kind of breaks it down for several of them, and we get a, an in-depth look at just what kind of mischief they were causing. And uh, it looks like some of them were, were good at certain things and others were good at other things. Like they all had their specialty trait of mischief, if you will. Yes. So, uh, well, of course, you know, these are just watchers with, with more knowledge, but then they turned it into mischief, which is what it what it seems like. So it's uh, we're gonna be digging into that, it's gonna be good. Absolutely, man. You want me to start reading? Get right into it, chapter seven here? Yeah, I'll let you start reading. Go ahead. Okay. And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one. And they began to go in unto them, and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments, and the cutting of roots, and made them acquainted with plants. And they became pregnant, and they bare great giants, whose height was three thousand ells, who consumed all the acquisitions of men. And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish and to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. Then the earth laid ac accusation against the lawless ones. All right, man, we got these antagonists here doing some mischievery we just said. Yeah, and, well, I love the fact that that chapter ends with the term lawless ones. Yes. It kind of uh, rubs against the narrative that there's dispensation of law because uh, they were already already referencing that term. We're going to see a lot more later as well, this yeah. idea of lawlessness. And that's where the father at creation instituted, you know, an organized behavior for everything. And it's, it's generically referred to as his law all throughout the canon of 66 and also in extra biblicals. And Enoch introduces this idea here as well. Um, talking about all the sin and the, and the mis mischief being created by the rebellious angels, refers to them as lawless ones. Very interesting. Very. One thing I want to add here in uh, the first verse, Sean, um, which often gets those who disagree with the book of Enoch, um, they'll often quote Matthew 22, 30, or uh, Mark 12, 25, which basically says, for in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So this is referring to, in context, the Sadducees are wondering, you know, what's it going to be like at the resurrection? And Messiah is basically telling uh, his audience that um, at the resurrection, we're, we're not going to be given in marriage, but are going to be like the angels in heaven. So most people will go to that and say, well, there you go. You can't marry because it says right here that angels cannot marry, or at least they think they, they're interpreting that into the text that angels can't marry or be given in marriage or have wives. That's not what the text is saying, is it, Sean? It's, it's, it's saying that we're going to be like the spirits, the angels, um, in that sense. But according to Enoch, 
they can. They can come and have wives. They can come and copulate with, with women. They didn't have women to copulate with, with their own kind, right? Because we know that angels are male. Right. And, um, was it Jubilees that says that they're circumcised and, and that they petitioned Yahweh to have wives? And he said, no, you're, I, didn't, I didn't make you to have wives. Which no, book was it? Jubilees does say they're circumcised. I think it's in... Um... It says the angels of his presence and many of the other ones. I think it's in chapter two. Jubilees talks about being circumcised. Yeah. But then as far as the petitioning, we're actually going to read about that later. I think in verses chapters 14 and 15, um, where it talks about how the um, or maybe even chapter 10. We're going to get we may get there today. Okay, but the so idea is yeah. the angels come to him and they say, can we you know, we want wives. And uh, and he's like, no, 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 I didn't make you for wives. Yeah. <laughs> you're not appointed wise you're eternal you don't need to procreate you know what i mean so it's yeah. um, the point is that they they could though they could yeah. procreate it's not that they couldn't they they were it's not like they were created um with the inability to procreate they can so i guess what i'm saying is the verses in matthew 22 it, it doesn't prove that just because we're going to be like the angels in the resurrection doesn't mean that the, the angels um weren't created with the ability to procreate Right. Yeah, they, they definitely were. Um, and that's and of course, you know, we see that they also had the ability because they're a, a seemingly different kind of creation. They had the ability to change their shape. They're shapeshifters. Yeah. So that's something else to consider, you know. Um, but even without the without the ability of being a shapeshifter, apparently they were uh, they're males and they were born with male parts. Yeah. According to the you know Jubilees and, and other places. And that's how, you know it's almost like inherent within their position of an angel of obedience, right? To be an angel, you know, to be considered an elect one, a holy one was the obedience of knowing that they were right up. They were created with this concept of obedience built in. If, if I could say it like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, since you just reminded me, um, the angels were called the holy ones, elect ones. There's, there's terms that the angels are given that we need to discern correctly when we read like Pauline um, writings that pertain to us, right? We get, we get referred to as the sons of God and the holy ones and stuff like that. But we literally become that at the resurrection, right? When Yeshua says we will be made like the angels, that's when we become literal sons of God and made in the same spirit type of material that the angels uh, have been given already. And so um, just earlier on, you know, when we... A second answer like you read it last week or the apocalypse brew um uh that's also called second address Ezra, Ezra, right yeah yeah uh, it doesn't i think it's chapter 4 verse 18 or something it says that you know we will be created higher than the angels recreated yeah. at the resurrection higher than the angels and so that's yeah right. that's why we get that that concept and when we're a direct creation we're not born of a woman's womb we get that you know directly made of god at the resurrection into uh, fullness of, of body and stature and and essence and entity that uh, that's why we're called sons of God and holy ones. And, you know, that's why we get those terms applied to us at that point. Right. And it's at that point when we literally take on those descriptions, right? Whereas right now, when we're in this corruptible flesh, we can refer to ourselves as that because we have the promises of what's to come. As yeah. long as we stay faithful to the covenant and, you know, run the faith race and complete it, we will become that. But, um, yeah, I just wanted to point that out for you folks. Um, you know, at the beginning of Enoch, it says that, he comes with his holy ones, right? And, you know, many dispensationists and pre-tribbers will, will try to make you think that, well, there you go. We already go to heaven when we die, and we're going we're gonna to come down with Yeshua 
the word called holy ones. Well, in context, Enoch is referring to angels as holy ones. And um, so that's who comes down on the day of the Lord. It's not us. It's the, the holy ones as the angels. But we do take on that title as well, holy ones, when we you know, take on the resurrection. Right. And this is what has tripped people up in the past when they're thinking that um, because we are referred to as holy ones by epistles, epistles uh, writers talking about after the resurrection. And then they see verses like Matthew 25, 31, where, you know, the son of man returns with all the holy ones on the day of the Lord. And they think that it's some about us. They think that we're coming back to fight um, the wicked and the laws to remove them from the land on the day of the Lord. And that's there's all these other verses that talk about at the resurrection. We're taken and we're hidden away. We're put in another. We're not we're not fighters in this in this end time game. Um, we're not resurrected to immediately engage in bloodshed. <laughs> That's right. You know, what I mean, we're actually spotless, blameless, pure um, as a virgin bride, as referenced in other places. That's being uh, presented to Yeshua, not because we're his bride, but because we're presented to him, like he says. And I actually cover this in a video I'm doing uh, soon. That we're presented to him on this day, spotless, so that he can present us to the Father. That's why I prayed in John 17 about I've not lost any one of them. Give me except the son of perdition and for all the future believers you know i'm praying for those as well so that i can present them to you in perfection of unity mm. so and all be a cod we can all be in in that oneness of thought mind action but we're not like you know we're not one as in the same physical being you know what i'm saying we're not being engrafted into some kind of strange borg mentality like we still have our individual thoughts and free will but we have the circumcised heart of the resurrection where we can be presented to to the Father from the Son in perfection, um, which is why being the resurrection, you know, it's, we're called being made perfect. Uh, but we don't we don't get resurrected just to start doing battle. <laughs> like that would be my goodness. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a I, I it, but I that's how people you know trip up on that. That's how they they come to that conclusion is they see some of these references by the epistle writers and they don't understand the time difference. Of yeah. how those are being applied at the resurrection. So All right, and and many will go to Joel's um, little right. prophetic book too and say there were the Joel two army, right? And and almost in another way, I'd almost say it's it's just a misunderstanding of who angels are. You know, right. uh, from all the um, scripture that comes before the epistles to understand the role of angels to the Father, and they do many different things. They're you know ministers, but they're also as warriors. And we're going to read about that. I think it's in. Um, Oh, uh, maybe I can't remember the chapter, Enoch 51, maybe, but there's a passage in there where Enoch is astounded because he's looking at the angels prepare for battle on the day of the Lord. Yeah. And he, falls him, he falls down and another angel has to be sent to pick him up and revive him, you know, and give him courage again to look at what he's looking at because he's so afraid of because he's seeing these guys prepare for battle. and He doesn't know what to do. And he's just freaking out. I mean, it's like. Um, which is why the world trembles when they see the holy ones, the angels of God, returning with Yeshua. They have the same reaction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And for those who are interested in, you know, a little bit more detail on what that day is going to look like in terms of what the angels are, are going to be doing, how they're going to be acting out. Um, is it Joel 3, Sean? I think is it the third chapter or the fourth chapter where it shows the angels coming down and like mighty men climbing into windows and, and not, you know, um, yeah, you know, like, adhering yeah. to their ranks and yeah. it's intense. 
Yeah, it's an intense description for those of you who are interested in seeing what the angels are going to be like on that day. Um, it's one of the, you know, the more comprehensive descriptions that I've come across. Uh, it's fascinating. And the reason why there has to be so many warrior angels that come down is because there are so many people trying to fight him. It truly will be the greatest battle of all time. It, yeah. I mean, as far as like military, you know, from a military standpoint, like it will be not the greatest as in glory, like something we would glory in. Like it was cool. I'm not talking about it like that. I mean, the greatest in numbers fighting each other. Yeah. Right? We talk about how there's big, big battles in the past where you've got like 100,000 men facing 70,000 men, you know. And um, we think that, you know, like stories in Hezekiah, like I think Isaiah 45 talks about the Assyrians came. They encamped around Jerusalem with 185,000 men. You know, the inhabitants of Jerusalem were trembling. They were afraid. Rightly so. You've, you've got almost 200,000 men outside your door. That's something impressive to look at. And this is what kings and armies and nations would do in the past. And they would just send mass numbers of people. Whereas nowadays we have kind of, you know, a different approach to war, right? We, we, we don't do it exactly like that. We still send mass numbers of people and there's still mass casualties, but it's over time. And it's through multiple campaigns and they're all sent out in different directions, you know, and they're done, you know, but back in the day, man, they just threw as many men at you as they could to overwhelm you with literal bodies. And that's what we see yeah. at the return yeah. of the Lord. As we see them gather in the Valley of Armageddon, all the, you know, the nations of the earth, the kings of the earth, in addition to Apollyon and these 200 million things that come up with them. So we have this massive amount of things in the geographical borders of the land of modern day Israel trying to fight Yeshua when he returns. So he brings a massive number of warrior angels with him to take out those things. Yeah. And, uh, and they do. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Um, I, can't, I think it's second Baruch or even second Ezra where it talks about how all the nations are essentially fighting each other. They're, they're coaxed into fighting each other. And then they turn their attention on God's elect one. Right. And they get tricked into fighting him. So you have just the entire earth, all of its inhabitants, essentially, um, you know, save a few, there's going to be a few nations that Yeshua is going to spare. Right. But they, they're all going after him and they're all convinced that, you know, this is an enemy and we need to destroy him. <laughs> it's just yeah. crazy. And that sure would fit really well into that whole fake alien invasion narrative. Yes. yes. You know, just oh, suddenly there's a there's a threat coming from outer space. We must fight it together. Yeah. And Sean, verse two here. Um, and they became pregnant. These women became pregnant, and they bear great giants whose height was three thousand l's. Um, the number there, according to um, another version that I have here, is the giants. Uh, brought forth Nephilim, and the Nephilim brought forth the Eliud, uh, whose stature was each 300 cubits. And so I just did a quick like Google search on what an ancient cubit was, and it was anywhere between 18 and 21 inches, which would equate to anywhere between 450 and 525 feet in height. And these are these first-generation giants. These are massive, massive dudes, man. It's massive. It's a big guy. And that, I'm just thinking about how much food he needs every day to maintain that, that yeah. body. Yeah, so that's, that, that's a lot of resources, which is why we see in the very next verse uh, that verse three says they consume the acquisitions of men and men can no longer sustain them. So the giants in verse four, the giants turned against them, devoured mankind. You know, it's because these guys are too big. So yeah. when we when we see passages like verse two and it gives us this outrageous number of height and, and bigness, 
and people think, oh, well, that's a mistranslation or that's a, you know, oh, that's just fable, right? That's just, you know, fantasy. Okay, well, why do the following two verses back it up with context? The following two verses have to explain to you the statement they just made because they know what that means. That means these people needed lots of resources because they're huge and they ran out of them. So they started eating man. <laughs> that's right. You know, that's um, so that's what we call context, guys. And this is <laughs> we're on we're on the channel called Kingdom and Context. We try to keep everything in context. So this is what I would encourage folks to do when they're reading scripture is, you know, we have sometimes and, and like I've said on, on other times, you know, I don't know where this where this behavior came from that's been taught to us, but it's very deceptive. This idea that we do just take pieces and run with it. You know, what I mean, we don't yeah. do that. When we read a normal book. We would never do that when we read a normal book. Um, in fact, we're reading the opening chapters of, you know, the first 10 chapters of Enoch. We, we would never stop reading there and then just run around saying Enoch's horrible and doesn't make sense and doesn't line up with the other books. If this were a normal book, if this were a normal novel you bought at the store at like a Barnes and Nobles or something, or you ordered from Amazon Prime and you got your book in the mail, you would never read the first 10 chapters and then put it down and say that book makes no sense. Yeah. You would read the rest to figure out all the things being introduced and set up in the first few chapters. So, you know, it, to see, I, I've seen this so prevalent amongst other believers, and I, I, I don't know, I believe it's a very deceptive um, behavior that's been somehow passed along, that we just somehow yeah. take pieces and we just ignore, we don't read to the end, and we just ignore all the surrounding context, and then we run with those pieces to either bash it or to create a whole other narrative. You know, and it just it causes so much confusion and makes people, yeah. you know, look kind of silly. So just read to the end and we'll, we're going to find all this other context that's going to help us understand these large claims being made at the front front end of the Book of Enoch. Yeah. Yeah. This logic that you're expounding upon, Sean, is <laughs> it, unfortunately it branches off into other areas, too. Right. With, um, you know, mainstream theology essentially promoting lawlessness right that god's law is done away with because most most christians at least the ones that i've i've been around in my life um tend to reside in, in what we call the new testament writings right where it, it appears just because of some of the, the expressions that paul uses um that were no longer under the law um that you know the commandments of god somehow have been nullified and, and aren't for us and we're in this dispensation of grace now and all these things but as you said because we don't know the front of the book because we're not taught to understand the context of, you know, starting at the beginning of a book and understanding the plot, the characters, all the development that, that is part of a natural way of going through a book. Um, people are just lost. They're, they're not grasping these, you know, these core concepts of, you know, what it means to be in covenant and, and that Yahweh's instructions were given to mankind from the beginning and they're never going away. There's no dispensation removing them. So, you know, and the same thing with this, this Enoch discussion. I definitely agree with that. And one thing I wanted to bring up, Sean, um, just because we're talking about these great giants and stuff here, um, the book of Judith, which was a book that was in the Septuagint, for those who aren't very familiar with the Septuagint, is it's, you know, it's the Latin word for is Septuagint. And um, apparently uh, there were 70 to 72 Hebrew uh, men who translated the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the Torah, and what we would you know, refer to as the Deuterocanon into Greek. And Judith was one of those books that was in it. And what's fascinating in the last chapter of Judith, chapter 16, verse 7 here, um, she refers to 
these giants and in an interesting way. And, you know, the Greeks obviously had this mythology of the Titans, you know, the clash of the Titans and all that stuff. So they, they, they knew that there were an existence just like every other culture, ancient cultures, um, that there were these mighty giants that had existed at some point. Um, so what this verse says here is for their mighty one did not fall by the hands of the young men. Sorry, I should give some context real quick before we go on. Um, so in this book, essentially King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of, uh, you know, the known world at the time. And there's another king of the Medes, I believe, uh, or Faxet, I believe his name is. Um, Nebuchadnezzar wants to war against him, and he's trying to recruit some of the other provinces that are in his kingdom to come to war against this other king. And uh, the Judeans didn't want to go along with it. So they, you know, they stayed out of this war, and King Nebuchadnezzar went with the people that did end up getting recruited, and, and he you know, wiped out this Median king. But he was really upset that these Hebrew people were not coming along and fighting with him. So he said that he was going to destroy them. So he sends Syrian armies down. And one of his chief captain leaders, I believe his name was Hollow Firms or something like that, um, is this big player of this book. And Judith, this young, very beautiful, um, righteous woman, ends up tricking him. And I believe she impales him and cuts off his head So she, and brings it back to... Uh, you know, the Israelites, and she's like saying, hey, I just killed this guy, and, and she's, you know, proclaiming it in this song that she starts singing out at the end of this book. And so, you know, we see here, as she's singing, she's saying, for their mighty one, referring to Hollow Ferns, his captain, did not fall by the hands of the young men, nor did the sons of the Titans smite him, nor did tall giants set upon him, but Judith, the daughter of Merari, undid him with the beauty of her countenance. So I just wanted to throw that in there as, you know, an interesting plug for you know the fact that judith apparently knew that there were titans and giants right and these greek scholars these hebrews that ended up translating um judith into into the greek used the word titan right or and gigantus i believe is the word for giants so they had a concept an understanding a belief system that there were giants and they are referred to in some of these extra biblical books as being literal individuals that existed you know yeah, absolutely, man. There was um, every culture across the, the ancient world has their own story of large people and yeah. were their rulers, and that's actually the case in most most nations, where the giants were the men of war, and they were the rulers uh, of the people, and that's where you know we see this this dichotomy uh, later on in in the canon of sixty six, <clears throat> both in a you know as the Israelites come out of, of the Exodus, they go into the land of Canaan. We see that the dichotomy that the giants were the ones they were fighting. They were the kings over the other nations they were running into in the land of Canaan. And uh, Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 3 give us a, a good insight on some of the movements over time of where these people came, excuse me, <coughs> of where these people came from. So, uh, you know, and there's, of course, some of them came from Kaftor which is interesting. They actually came out, I think it's Deuteronomy chapter two, um, two, two, it's in the latter portion of chapter two, but it talks about the, uh, the Kaftarim came in and they took out the Avim and they moved in land to Canaan over time while the Israelites were in the Exodus for 400 something years. So they were, uh, there was all this ha happening and this going on while Israel was, you know, because remember, Abraham sojourned in the land with Isaac and Jacob, and then over time they moved their encampment of 70 people down to, to Israel, to Egypt, excuse me. And then 
any possession or any influence or any sway they may have had during that time, uh, other nations were coming in. And that's why Deuteronomy also tells us about the Moabites, the Ammonites, who are the descendants of Lot, and how they were having to fight the the remnants of giants, the Rephaim and the Nephilim as well. Yeah. So there was a, it was a consistent issue that was happening with these, these larger folks. And we get direct dimensions into Deuteronomy about the size of these guys. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting, man. Um, one more plug, actually, for the first book of Baruch, which is another really fascinating extra biblical text I think we'll hopefully end up going over in the show at a, another time. But it's just another plug for uh, the Nephilim. It says in the third chapter here, it says, O Israel, how great is the house of Elohim, and how large is the place of his possession, great and has none end, high and unmeasurable. Now, th these couple of verses are referring to, you know, the New Jerusalem, Zion. This is, this is the city that God built with his own hands. Um, there were Nephilim famous from the beginning that were of so great stature and so expert in war. Those did not Yahweh choose, neither gave he the way of knowledge unto them. But they were destroyed because they had no wisdom and perished through their own foolishness. So here's another plug for, uh, for these Nephilim, right? And, you know, Baruch, one of the described to Jeremiah um, obviously knew about this he knew that there were Nephilim there were these massive giants you know that existed and um, they perished and Enoch tells us when they perished why they perished and you know it just to me it just removes all obscurity about what's being referred to in Genesis 6 with these Nephilim right because I know that a lot of detractors will say, well, no, like the sons of God in, in Genesis 6 are referring to the good sons of Seth. And, you know, the daughters of men were the bad daughters of Cain. And, and, you know, somehow the Nephilim came from that. And that's known as a Sethite theory, as most of you will know. But it just doesn't make any logical sense, especially when you use, you know, the Hebrew to back up. You know, if we're going to use the law first mention, most people think that Job is the book that likely was written first. Correct, Sean? Like that was one of the, the earlier writings, apparently. That's what you know some scholarship yeah. will say. A lot of people believe that Job would be a contemporary of Abraham as far as on the timeline. And therefore, his book actually predates Genesis through Deuteronomy as far as literally being pinned down. But, you know, the Book of Jubilees tells us there were other books that were passed down from Noah, that were passed down from Enoch, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had possession of. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's all kinds of literature out there that was already going on. Yeah. We may not have access to it now today. But what I, it's a little point I wanted to, to address as far as the legitimacy of giants in the past, as far as not only the, you know, from the scholarship that you're re reciting here about translations from Greek and you know, the validity of the Hebrew people translating you know, uh, into a Latin version, or excuse me, into the Greek version of the Septuagint, and this idea uh, of them carrying forward the ideas they knew that were well established. We also have, in addition, like I said, many cultures across the world that have their own stories of giants and their own, and their own words for it. Even the Native American cultures in the United States, in the North American hemisphere, you know, uh, hemisplane, excuse me, we have our own, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm, some of my ancestry is Chickasaw. And in the Chickasaw Nation, um, they refer to, you know, the giants as the Lofas. That was the name they had for them. And they even interacted with them way back in the day in the North American continent. So, and all the different tribes had their own names for the giants they interacted with. And there's been remnants of giant skeletons found all across North America. This is very easy to research. 
and um, this is <clears throat> it's just out there. You can you can look it up. Um, there's there's lots of activity all over the world. But here's the thing that I want to really stress, though. A lot of in the in the church community, a lot of division comes over this topic only because people try to make the connector that they say, well, you know, Genesis six tells us if we take it that the sons of God had you know the rebellious angels called the watchers as mentioned in enoch and they came and they they took wives they procreated and their offspring were called nephilim well it says the the sons of god the watchers were dealt with and they were judged before the flood then who are the nephilim that are popping up after the flood doesn't so they they basically extrapolate and say well if that was how they came about in the beginning and before the flood then it, they would have to only come about that way after the flood but that's where I would say we, you know, that's why I love the book of Enoch, because we can dig a little deeper. And we also have the book of Jubilees that gives us some clues as far as the reemergence of the Nephilim post-flood as well. And this is a little saying that I hope people remember, but there's more than one way to make a Nephilim. Hmm. It's not just, just simply the procreation between a rebellious angel and a, and a woman of mankind. There's more than, and so let's look at this chapter we're reading right here in verse 1 where it talks about, and all the others together with them, talking about the angels that we were just introduced in verse in chapter 6, all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go in unto them and to defile themselves with them. And here's the important part, they taught them charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants. So Ken, a few years ago, I studied this verse out to the point where I said, okay, what's the big deal with cutting of roots and plants? What's going on here? Why why is that included suddenly in this? Because if you look at the very next statement in verse 2, it says, and they became pregnant and bare giants. So if we're reading this in context, that's a very unique thing to include right before you introduce the idea of them becoming pregnant with and bearing giants. So I looked up, and there's actually growth hormones inside of the roots of plants and trees. And I don't think that it's a coincidence. Then the book of Amos, that the Amorites, who were considered to be giants, were referred to as oaks, right? And I think, that it's, you know, whether it's a metaphorical term, it's interesting that that term was used of them. Um, and they were also called giants in other places in Scripture. So here we have this idea that the fallen angels are making, taking wives and making themselves acquainted, with the, the women of mankind, making them acquainted with this idea of cutting roots, and being coming acquainted with plants, and so in the in the base of roots of trees and plants, there's these five different growth hormones, and it's uh, I think it's abscisic um, acid, ethylene alcohol, um, uh, auxins, um, cytokinins, and gibberellins. Okay, and these are all growth hormones that communicate to the plants as far as how how tall to grow before it starts to sprout. And then once it sprouts, other other portions of those growth hormones communicate how long the elongation of those limbs will sprout. Isn't that amazing, right? And that's incredible. incredible. So suddenly, if you can manipulate those, you're going to get a much longer base. You're going to get a much longer, uh, you know, base of a tree before it starts sprouting limbs, or a base of a plant, or you can get a stubbier base with huge plant limbs that fall down onto the ground. So you can manipulate it is the point. And for whatever reason, it seems to be that these growth hormones growth hormones were being extracted from the plants and, and given to the women so that they can 
affect their gestation so that the child, once he actually hits those growth stages within the puberty time frame, would start to grow into a giant. And this is what we also, um, you know, we can see this, this idea um, just in other things because this, you know, for example, can a lot of people know this, but that growth hormone that I mentioned, gibberellins, is the main ingredient in miracle Grow. The stuff you throw in your plants outside in front of your house. And that was actually invented by, and I say invented, but it was quote unquote rediscovered. Maybe we should put it like that. It was rediscovered. Um, but in the 19, 1919 or 1929 by a Japanese uh, botanist. And then the U.S. Army picked it up for experimentation in the 1960s. And that's suddenly where this product came from called miracle Grow in the late 1960s. Is we, <laughs> it's from... Growth hormones called gibberellins that you get from plants and tree roots. No coincidence there. No coincidence that we're reading about it right here in the Book of Enoch. Guys, this is stuff you've, you've seen when you go you know, on your Saturday trip to Home Depot or Lowe's. You've seen miracle grow. If anyone's ever planted grass on gardening of any kind, you've considered using some sort of enhanced fertilizer um, that's available. There's lots of, of products on the market available for enhanced fertilizer. And the main ingredient in miracle Grow, at least in its original form, it, clearly it could have been augmented over time, um, but in its original form was gibberellins, and that is very interesting to me. So there's no coincidence yeah, yeah. that these things are put together. We get giants, we get angels taking wives, teaching them about uh, these things inside of roots of plants, and then suddenly you're talking about giants. It's not a coincidence. Yeah. Well, just with regards to what you were talking about, post-flood, how they, they appeared and reemerged. Um, you know, there's a, there's theories out there. You have the multiple incursions theory where the angels came back after the flood and, and did the same type of thing that they did in Genesis 6. That, to me, can get easily debunked because as we're going to go through um, the rest of this book, we're going to see that these angels are going to get dealt with severely. Their punishment is harsh, and it's enough to make, like, chief captains such as Michael quake in his boots, right? And it's something that will definitely deter angels from ever repeating that type of mischievery again. So the multiple incursion theory to me is, is it's weak. It's a very weak argument. Now I know um, brother Rob Skiba has an argument about, well, it could have been genetically passed on through the sons of Noah's wives, because, you know, I think it's the Jasher that talks about how, kind of like a week before the flood came on the world, um, Noah went out and picked some some daughter or some wives for his sons and they you know they were from the corrupted or as the theory goes, they were from the corruption of uh, men. So yeah, they, they could have been passed. the speculation. I don't think Jasher directly says that women were corrupted. It's going off the premise where it says all flesh was corrupted. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's another theory. I guess what I'm getting at that's a theory, and it, it seems more logical than the prior one I just mentioned, the multiple theory. But then, don't I can't quote verbatim which book it is, but there's there's another book where it talks about um, the Watchers had written some stuff on a rock that ended up surviving the deluge, right? And like, I don't remember the character. You probably know it better than me. It's he comes across this. Jubilees chapter eight. It's the character of Canaan in Jubilees chapter eight. And what's interesting, since you already mentioned the Septuagint was that Canaan was taken out of the modern translations that we see in the Table of Nations in Genesis 10, since he was a contemporary of Nimrod in that, in that generation of kids being born. Mm. Uh, and he's, for some reason, he's removed from many of the translations of Genesis 10, but 
we actually see him in Luke chapter three in Mary's genealogy, and he's just inserted in there because um, it goes all the way back to Genesis ten table nations um, uh, generation of people. And I think that's fascinating that they kind of left him in the New Testament, but that he's been removed from it in the Old Testament. Um, but he's in the book of Jubilees. His, his name's Canaan, and it says that he went out, and as you know, some of the, the flood waters were still drying up in certain areas, um, which apparently was taking hundreds of years to do. That he found the teachings of the Watchers um, on a rock, and he started doing them. And um, and it, of course, he didn't want to tell Noah about it because it says in in the passage, it says. He knew Noah would be mad. And you're like, well, yeah, he would know would be mad. He just went through all that chaos. He just watched the world get flooded. He had to build a boat and be on a boat with uh, animals stinking up the boat for a year. Yeah. You know, like, like it's he's not happy about this situation. And you're going out and doing the exact same behavior that led to that chaos before the flood. And now you guys are starting to pick up that behavior again. So, yeah, I'm, they definitely wouldn't want to tell Noah about it. And then... Um, and so, of course, this guy Canaan, like I said, he's like a, he's a cousin of Nimrod. He's in that same generation. So there's no there's, and this is of course in the same. I think they're the next generation above them is where we get the guy uh, Anakim, Anak, excuse me, Anak, which is where we get the the descendants of Anak are called the Anakim, which is the giants. And this is um, they're the all these families were close knit and connected and talking to each other anyway, right? So how, you know you you find something fascinating. How long before your brothers and your cousins know about it? You know what I'm saying? And you really keep a secret amongst close-knit close family like that. And um, so I, they clearly started doing this behavior again. And since it's only just simply understanding how to manipulate growth hormones when during the gestation period of a woman being pregnant, it doesn't require special seed mixing with another seed to become pregnant, you know, to become a giant. Um, it just simply requires the right combination of growth hormones that's so yeah you could have nephilim at any stage you could have nephilim today <laughs> you know what i mean and i and i think our military knows that too by the way i think they're already working on stuff so wouldn't surprise me man but yeah that definitely um to me that makes perfect sense in terms of the reemergence of the nephilim post-flood but I, I think what we need to remember is well, as we're going to come up to eventually, is that these first-generation giants were only given a lifespan of 500 years. Yahweh was only going to give them 500 years, and they were going to destroy each other within that, those 500 years. So you have a 500-year gap between that and the flood, and then post-flood as they started to reemerge. Um, why they become so small, so much smaller, I think is interesting. Um, as Ezra mentions in his book. I know I keep referring to that and it's going to be a book hopefully we're going to get to eventually, but he, he's revealed that the first generation of men, so Adam, Adam and onward, they were huge men. They were massive guys. Genetically, they were just untainted, right? They, they were big, broad guys. And he's told that their stature was so great. And since sin came into the world, mankind has essentially you know, devolved up to the point where Ezra was being shown all the things that he was being shown. And he's saying everyone before you was larger in stature and people after you are going to be much smaller in stature, right? Which completely debunks the evolutionary theory as well. Um, but in terms of Nephilim, if, if they're being born from human women and these women are becoming less and less in stature as well, 
it makes sense why they would be much smaller just in and of themselves, even though they were, you know, being produced possibly by root cutting and, and all these other things that we just talked about. So it would make sense that they're much smaller in the pre or the post flood context. Well, there we see, um, you're absolutely right. There are genetically would be smaller giants. And then we see a reference to, you know, in numbers chapter 13, and I'm, there, we see a reference from the, the 12 spies who went out and spied out the land of Canaan for, for all of Israel, come back and they give this report that, you know, there were as grasshoppers to them. So I know a lot of people say, well, that's just a, that's a, clearly a metaphor, right? That's clearly just their way of describing. And it's very possible that, yes, that they were just expressing how they were, because it does mention their fortified cities, you reach, you reach up to the heavens, you know what I mean? And, but that the men were, you know, giants, they were Nephilim, descendants of the Anakim. So there's context even within Numbers 13 that kind of expounds upon where these guys came from, and they weren't just tall, tall, you know, taller than them guys, right? They weren't just dudes that were taller than the ones looking at them, but they were very, very big. Um, yeah. And still, there were different sizes, as we see throughout Scripture, different sizes of Nephilim, um, some of them bigger than others, and that's that's fine. You know, Goliath was not as big as King Og, and that's fine. There are different sizes of giants. Um, and it could just be they were not only genetics were changing over time because you're having a consistent consistent birth from smaller people, but also they, you know, the um, practicality, if you will, if I could just put it like that. If this is something that you can just apply growth hormones to in an experimental fashion and suddenly say you have, you know, three children and you give 10, 10 milligrams of growth hormones to children, child one. And he grows to be 15 feet tall. Well, you give eight milligrams to child two, and he grows to be 12 feet tall, right? Well, the 15 foot tall guy, you have to build an entire new portion of your house to accommodate him. You have to your your grocery bill goes up tenfold. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. so the practicality there, as far as like, do we need giants this big? Let's increase our weapons of war. Let's get better at fighting. Let's get better at incrementally um, uh, oppression of government, so that we can take away our threats from within easier you know and we see that with the philistine empire in scriptures as well as they try to impose a weapons ban so there's other ways to subjugate people you don't you maybe not always need a king og or you may not always need a 15 footer or even a 30 footer to try to impose because i know like in greek mythology now again this is I, I say that word is because that's what it's called but in in the stories from ancient greece you know, whether this is true or not, I don't know. But they talked about people like Hercules, or excuse me, Achilles and Ajax being, they said Achilles was 30 foot tall. That's why he was so undefeatable in battle. And Ajax was 10 feet tall. And, you know, he was his head and shoulders above everybody in the battlefield. Yeah. You know, and that's why these guys were considered great warriors um, because they were physically proud. Their physical prowess was was the same as a, as a, as a six foot man, but yet they were 10 feet or 15 feet so they were very hard to defeat on the battlefield. Um, and we see similarities to this in Scripture as well. Like I said, you know, King Og was considered a great warrior. That's why it was such a big deal when the Israelites took him out. And all the inhabitants of the land of Jericho were, were quaking in their boots to hear that they had defeated Sihon and his brother Og, right, the two kings of the Amorites, uh, because these guys were fearsome warriors, and they were huge giants. <laughs> so the, this idea here is that, it's it's very possible that if you can't control this process, 
you you may realize to yourself, okay, well, if just like in the story of David and Goliath, if, if it, all it takes is a rock coming out of a slingshot at 200 miles an hour to kill a, a 12 footer or a nine footer, well, maybe his height isn't an advantage at all. Maybe we just need to figure out how to make him smarter or faster or give him better, stronger copper for armor. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, because you you read about the Israelites, I mean, they were incredibly skilled marksmen when it comes to slingshots. That's why I love the book of um, uh, Judges, what talks about the, the Benjaminites. Even though the Benjaminites ended up being bad, you know, in that section of history of time, um, it gives us brief reference to their warriors and how so many of them were experts with the slingshot, both left and right-handed. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, these are snipers. Imagine snipers and having a, a, a platoon, if you will, or I don't know the exact word, but having a, a regiment of 7,000 snipers staring at you that can hit you know, the width of a hair from 200 feet, which is what Judges talks about. You know, and that's, these are, yeah, you wouldn't even, you've got an advancing army coming at you of giants. Well, you got 7,000 snipers sitting there just picking them off before they even get within a football field of you. So what I'm saying is there's some practicality in all this that, you know, we see these giants get less over time. And it's, in my opinion, it, you know, it's because the, the mechanics of war, the weapons of war, the skill set of war was getting so refined amongst men that it was it was kind of leveling the playing field, so to speak, you know, all pun intended, I guess, that there was maybe the need for a big 20-foot giant wasn't really there anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and um, these giants in this seventh chapter here, they were consuming all the acquisitions of men, and men weren't able to, cons like, to sustain them anymore. They were just devouring everything, and then they even turned on the men themselves, right? So they were, they were getting... To become a liability on them it was they couldn't <laughs> it was becoming dangerous to have them around <laughs> right and if you're if you're bringing a big giant to war like that right how much food do you got to bring out to the battlefield just for that one dude yeah because these guys you know they didn't have how many horses do you need to bring out just to carry him to the battlefield you know uh if you're pulling him unless he's going to walk and then how long is it going to take him you know it's like there's all these logistics involved that a military leader would have to consider. And so before the flood, if you're just looking at dudes that are 45 or 450 feet tall, they, I, I highly doubt someone's telling them what to do. Yeah. Right. I highly doubt you can just say, Hey, calm down and come over here and fight this battle for me. You know, that giant's going to do what he wants, man. He's, yeah. he's, he's Cartman on steroids, literally. <laughs> what I want. Yeah. You know? And you're just like this guy, he can, you know, and then no wonder they end up getting in fights with themselves. You know, that's why the the giants, you know, clash of the titans. Yeah, they start civil war with themselves because it's like, you know, what kind of what kind of ego would go along with a guy that is that big? You know, he just takes yeah. what he wants, does what he wants. Yeah. So yeah. Well, so the purpose. Yeah, the purpose of even creating these things, Sean. Were they, in your opinion, to wipe out mankind so that a savior couldn't come? It's there's there's a lot of theory and speculation there, but you know if we have, if once we we're gonna dig into this later, but once we dig into the narrative of um, who this Satan character is, as we talked briefly last episode about, you know, um, alluding to him being this Azazel character that's mentioned in the Book of Enoch, and we're actually gonna read about him in the next few chapters as well, is that all sin was ascribed to him, 
and that he could possibly be the one that influenced the sons of God to come down. Um, he may not have been the leader of them. He may not have been the one that literally led them to the earth, um, but he may have been the one to influence them that this was a good idea. So there's there's some speculation there, and we're going to dig into that more as we go. But this idea that um, Azazel, and you know, it, I think it says in the Wisdom of Solomon that through his envy, he led mankind astray. So if he's leading the angels, his fellow brethren, watchers astray as well, there could be, you know, he's just using one to get to the other, in my opinion. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So if you're trying to corrupt the genome of the humankind, and you're trying to create chaos to the point where you may need to destroy everyone, which is what we see in Genesis 6. Genesis uh, 6, verse 5, God says he's repentant that he made man, because there's chaos continually. You know, there's only violence and evil in his heart continually, and chaos was all over the earth. If, if this was the motivation and the, the long-term strategy of Satan, which Enoch calls Azazel Satan, if this was his, his intention, I personally could easily see that as being, you know, he's using his, he's deceiving his fellow brethren watchers to come down to take wives, to make them think that this is something they need, that this is a good idea, to transgress their order, to transgress their instructions, create chaos among mankind, simultaneously teaching mankind chaos, weapons of war, how to, you know, deceive one another, um, and then, boom, you, you know, you create this grand narrative where you've corrupted mankind so far, not, not only in behavior, but also on a genetic line, it makes it very difficult for Messiah to come to bring the kingdom of God, which is the gospel, the kingdom of God, yeah. right? It makes it very difficult for that to happen, which was the promise to Adam from the very beginning, you know? So, and of course, if we take seriously these ideas that were, uh, again, ideas we're also going to see in Enoch, right? Enoch 48, Enoch chapter 62, 62 and 63, where it talks about how the Son of Man, the Messiah to come, was with the Father from the beginning. So before the heavens and earth were well, before the, uh, the sun, moon, and stars were created, and before um, all of earth was formed in Genesis 1, you know, in the very beginning, the Son of Man was already named in the presence of the Lord of Spirits. He was already, he was already there, hanging out, just like, uh, you know, Colossians 1, firstborn of all creations, Revelation 3.14, that he was the firstborn of all creation, of everything that was made. This is why he's, you know, given the stature of prominence that he does, that he's the one designated and chosen to walk in the full authority and agency of the Almighty, the Father, is because he was already there. So if these watcher angels see that he's destined eventually to come, because that's what the prophecy shows in Enoch, then maybe that's when the wheels started turning in Azazel's crazy mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Where he's like, well, maybe, maybe I need to step in here and try to stop this son of man from ever having a chance to come through mankind, right? Yeah, and yeah. become the, the destined king that will judge all things in the future and bring and restore this because, you know, if, if, if it was Azazel that in, influenced the watchers to create the corruption that led to Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden, then he wouldn't want that to be restored. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's very, very fascinating. fascinating. Yeah, there's, there's a lot there, man. Enoch is a fun book, guys. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things that always puzzled me was um, why did Satan or, you know, Azazel, if that's what we're going with here, potentially, why did he hate Adam so much? You know, what, what just bothered him about Adam that he decided to completely, like, throw off his own glory and all this stuff to just 
be an enemy to mankind and Yahweh. And I'm not promoting this book. It's a book that I've looked into. I think it's fascinating. I haven't fully vetted it yet. It's another extra biblical book. Um, I think it's the Revelation of Moses. Uh, it's one of the books of Adam and Eve. But it talks about how um, Eve wanted to know. She wanted to know why the devil, why do you hate us so much? This is after they've already been booted out of paradise. Adam and Eve left. They transgressed. They were tricked by Azazel through the serpent. Um, the serpent being the mouthpiece for Azazel to trick them into eating. Um, they want to know, why do you hate us so much? And the devil straight up tells them. He says, well, I was created before you. And that, that, that is confirmed in Jubilees chapter one. We know, or Jubilee, this is the first chapter. I'm not sure which one it is, but first or second chapter of Jubilees where it goes over the creation account. Um, second chapter, I believe. Yeah. It says that all, all the angels were created on day one, right? So we don't get that information anywhere in, in the 66 canon, right? We, don't, we, don't, we just know that they were created at some point in time. We don't know which day, but Jubilees tells us it's on day one. And so Azazel was created on day one, or Satan, the devil. And as Adam was created on the fifth day, or sixth day, sixth day, sixth day, sorry, um, he was made, we were made, Adam was made in Yahweh's image which is a unique characteristic that only we obtain. And so according to this book, it says that Azazel and his hosts were commanded and instructed by Yahweh to come before us, us being mankind, Adam, Adam and Eve, and to essentially give reverence to them because they were made in Yahweh's image and they're more important than the angels. The angels we know are ministering spirits for us. Right, they're they're above us right now, but we're going to be above them at the resurrection. And so we were always of you know significant importance above the angels. And so when Michael and his hosts were led to Adam to give them you know not worshiping as in like worshiping Yahweh, but giving them reverence, you're you know you're a, a, a superior creation in this you know creative efforts that Yahweh just um, partook in. Zazel didn't like that. He said, "Wait a minute, I'm your elder." I was created before you. Why? Why aren't you worshiping me? Why am I bending? Why do I have to bend my knee to you? This this isn't fair. Like I'm your elder. I'm you know, relatively more powerful than you. Want. This doesn't make sense. So already we got the pride in four days. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where the pride started to kick in. Apparently, to this book that he didn't like the idea of having to you know bend the knee before a superior being that was made in Yahweh's image. I'm now now folks. I'm not saying that this is a legit book. This is you know. The gospel truth here, but it's an interesting bit of detail that we don't see throughout this, the rest of the scriptures, and it makes sense. It makes sense to me um, for various reasons, but um, yeah, I just find it fascinating that that's why he started to get his hate on, and, and then from then on, because he disobeyed that commandment, then he got removed, and so that's where it started to spiral out of control, and he started to have a, an incredible hatred towards us to the point where he decided that he's going to try to trick. Eve, starting with Eve through the serpent, um, to get us to, to, to transgress Yahweh's commandments by eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and that—that's what it spiraled onto. So I find it fascinating. Yeah, there's a there's um, just a, a general observation from the interaction we see with angels that are ministering spirits. That's what you know Scripture calls them, and um, and they are sent to to help out mankind. And every now and then we get to see them interact with mankind in, in a sense of, um, I mean, we don't get to see a lot of personality from them, but it seems like every now and then we do, you know, 
Um, just a, just glimpses, little bitty glimpses. Unfortunately, we get more personality seen from um, the bad guy because he's the one who's not following the father's orders and not being not walking in the agency of the father to carry out a command that's good for us. So we we get to see more of his his own thoughts and, and intentions. Um, but this whole concept in general it makes me think of you know this idea that in in the garden in Adam and Eve. You know, they apparently were not, they were created in the image of God, but they were not created in, in the full knowledge of God. So they had this kind of innocence about them that he's trying to take from them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, because he already seems to know the difference between the knowledge of good and evil. And he's telling them, like, well, apparently you guys don't know everything. You know, and God's trying to keep you from knowing everything because he doesn't want you to be like him, which is hilariously ironic. And it's a lie, obviously. Because they were made in the image of God and nobody else was. Yeah. And so yeah, well, they were already more like God than Azazel or any of any whoever was speaking through the serpent, whoever was encouraging, you know, whatever was going down there, whoever that was, um, they were already more like God than that than the deceiver. Yeah. You know, well, part of the trickery, Sean, that was involved with the conversation between the serpent and Eve was um, the pitch that not only can you be made like God, Elohim, um, but Yahweh himself is withholding this from you. And, and, and he plugged kind of in her ear, like he's holding information from you that you deserve to know. Right. And why not know it? You can be just like us, Elohim, um, these God, these spirit beings that are privy to this knowledge. And, and Yahweh is actually holding back from, from your full potential of understanding things. So just that is what got her enticed according to this book, this Adam and Eve book. Um, which makes sense. Another reason. Well, yeah, I want to know, right? Like that. That's just an extra incentive to to, to transgress. It might be worth it. I might know more about things that aren't being revealed to me. Yeah, it's, it was very deceptive for sure on, on many levels. Um, yeah. Just uh, the wording is, yeah, it's it's been dissected by many scholars because it's it's very very clever. Um, okay, so. Here in seven, we, we talked about, you know, we got the introduction of giants and how they were over consuming because they had too much. You know, they needed too much. They required too much. They turned on man. They became cannibalistic towards mankind. And, and then also talks about in verse five. And they began to sing against bird, beast, reptiles, fish, devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. And this is where I would say this possibly could be the moment we start seeing, you know, uh, people eating unclean. You know, and this is something interesting, a concept, you know, in Leviticus 11, we get this idea of what clean animals are and what unclean animals are. And God says, do not eat the unclean animals, um, but the clean animals you can. And we even, you know, a lot of people, again, in this dispensation mentality that's been taught in, been taught in, the, in the United States and, you know, a lot of prominent mainstream Can churches. Canada, too. Canada, too, yeah. In the last... Uh, hundred years or more is this idea of dispensation that the laws of God were only given to the Israelites. They don't apply to us today, and they were only given in Mount Sinai. Um, that's not true, guys. The Bible doesn't talk about that at all. Um, in fact, especially the extra biblicals, the ones that, are, that were removed from the canon, they, they express clearly to us that these, these same instructions that were given at Sinai, minus a few details uh, that were specific to the Levites setting up shop and creating the tabernacle and all the things that went like that. But the, the moral instructions um, that were given and uh, the instructions for living in general that were given in the in the Torah, 
um, they were already around. They were already being followed since the days of Adam. And that's why the book of Jubilees is so fascinating because it venerates that. And they were kept in heaven, guys. They're kept in heaven. These are the same rules that apply to everybody. That's why Exodus 12, God says there's one rule for everyone. You know, these these laws are not just for you. They're there for everyone. And there's and it's just one law for everybody. You know, it's and, and within that quote unquote law, within the, the general consensus of this idea was clean and unclean animals. And we even see in Genesis 7, Noah knew the difference between clean and unclean animals as he brought in, you know, um, seven pairs of clean and two pairs of unclean into the ark. And a lot of people are misconstrued, you know, they're confused by the old classic depiction of the animals going two by two into the ark. They actually brought a lot more than just two of each kind in the ark. He brought two pairs of unclean and seven pairs of clean. Why? Because you need lots of food you can eat. <laughs> and you're not gonna you're not gonna eat yes. the only two pigs that you know <laughs> yes. come off the ark either. Yeah. So I mean, that's yeah. He's there's just they already knew they already knew the idea of a clean and unclean. And it's possible that this moment here, when all this chaos started happening, that the giants started eating everything. Clearly, eating other people is eating unclean. If we, I think we all should agree with that. Yes. Cannibalism is unclean, right? That's forbidden in the Father's laws. So that's why this whole thing is very appropriately wrapped up in verse 6 when it says, The earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. Because everything we're reading about is lawlessness. These guys are transgressing the orders of creation. They're transgressing the instructions of God. And they're creating corruption. Uh, violence is happening in, in ways they've never seen before. All of it's lawlessness. And the earth itself is, gonna, is not going to take it well. <laughs> because we were created in a symbiotic relationship with the earth. Because we were created from the earth. So when lawlessness begins... The earth itself will spit you out, so to speak, right? The earth itself will revolt against you. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's why it's saying the earth itself laid accusation against the lawless ones. So um, it's a very interesting concept. And we see that layered throughout scripture as well about our behavior affects the land from which we were created from. So, okay, again, and this is in chapter eight here. Uh, we'll just start. It says, And Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them the metals of the earth and the art of working them, and bracelets and ornaments, the use of antimony, and the beautifying of the eyelids, and all kinds of costly stones, and all coloring tinctures. And there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray, and became corrupt in all their ways. Samyaza taught enchantments and root cuttings, Armoros, the resolving of enchantments, Barakiel taught astrology, Kokobiel, the constellations, Ezekiel, the knowledge of the clouds, Barakiel, the signs of the earth, Shamsiel, the signs of the sun, Sariel, the course of the moon. And as men perished, they cried, and their cry went up to heaven. Wow. All right. Fascinating stuff. Um, we were just talking about Azazel a lot, right? So here we got Azazel uh, named and we're also told what he contributed to uh, to create corruption and godlessness. And it looks like yeah. he, you know, metalworking for one, and also the beautifying of the eyelids and what's the use of antimony, which to me is you know, a form of makeup um, for women, and then bracelets and ornaments, right? So he's 
all kinds of costly stones. So it's almost like he's not only for the men, he's he's playing up to their aggressiveness. And for the ladies, he's playing up to their vanity. Very yeah, I would say that's a accurate evaluation, definitely. It's uh <laughs> he knew that through the teaching of these things and implementation of these these things for women that men would just fornicate all the more and, and lust after the flesh all the more which is i mean we're told that through all these things um well and if i could you know make a loving joke here you know how many times have we heard the uh the joke about a woman who loves a man in uniform yeah my wife uh, right <laughs> she said that many times i'm a paramedic and she loves it when i put on my paramedic uniform but if i'm just wearing a one of these, eh, you're all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so now we've got Azazel make, teaching men to make breastplates and shields and swords and knives. So we got a dude dressed up in battle gear. Yeah. Wouldn't like it. So back and forth, you know, no, it's no wonder the next statement in verse 2 says there arose godlessness and committed fornication. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you've got, uh, they're playing upon the eyes. Um, in both regards, the lust of the flesh. Yeah, and they were all led astray, and they became corrupt in all their ways through these things. It's pretty wild. Now, yeah. then we get into some interesting other guys that are not mentioned a lot, um, like Semyaza taught enchantments. Okay, so I'm just guessing that's general. You know, I'm not too hip on all the words that go with sorcery and magic, and you know, the, the craft of being a magician or whatever. Yeah, so I'm guessing enchantments relates to. The, the practices of, of magic. Yeah, black black magic, spells, all those things, curses. And then, of course, it mentions root cuttings again. right? Which, Which goes back to what you were talking about. That's right. It would make sense for him to have that knowledge because then he could, you know, through the uh, taking wives, he could do what he wanted to do with, with that knowledge to them and create those offspring. And then it talks about the resolving of enchantments. Armoros taught the resolving of enchantments. I don't know what that means or what that is. Because, uh, again, I don't practice that stuff. Uh, the reversal of curses and spells, apparently. Okay. So, I, that's um, my, my guess. I, I mean, I don't, I'm not an expert in this stuff either, but that's what I think is what's being referred to here. And then uh, Barachiel taught astrology, which I think that's interesting because we still see that today. So that's a, definitely a long-standing practice that's kept up since and this and so Ken, we're getting this telling us directly the rebellious angels of heaven taught mankind astrology and that it was godlessness it was bad it was corruption yeah yet we'll still lean on it today yeah it's very interesting. Well, same with uh i mean cocobel the constellations and this next guy is Zekel, the knowledge of the clouds right weather patterns and and things like that i mean it's something we still rely on today and even in Yeshua's day, I mean, he's, he reprimanded the Pharisees and, and them for having knowledge of understanding, you know, you can, you can um, discern the weather patterns, but you can't discern the times. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm just wondering if he's referring to that, that this was a long held understanding of, you know, the clouds and the weather patterns that it's since these teachings from this guy is It's very, very possible. And, if I may playfully take it further, could it be also, you know, like the modern military of cloud seeding, right? How to create clouds yeah. 
And that's that could be something. Uh, I'm not saying they did that back then. I'm just saying that that general practice of information. It seems that they're still interested because, like the U.S. government, it's on the record. It's it's a in you know publicly uh, documented Senate bill in the U.S. Senate that they've it's called climate mitigation, and um, you know and it's the geoengineering of weather patterns, you know, through aerosols in the air, and it's very and it's called cloud seeding is its generic term. Yeah. So it's very interesting that. Um, and of course, I, I want to look real quick at Coco BL where it talks about the, the constellations because, you know, how would that lead people astray just to understand the constellations? Yeah, that's a good question, man. Um, <laughs> you know, that's one of the topics that I am not the greatest at and have never really had, a, a, you know, a desire to truly understand constellations and all these other things. I'm, I couldn't offer a, a perspective on that too much, but I know that you know, the Maseroth is mentioned and stuff like that in Job, I believe. Um, it's, it's, to me, it seems like an odd um, reprimand that this was a bad thing to know. If this is even what it, you know, it's referring to, it's, it, it's not for men to understand the constellations. It was only for the, you know, the angels to understand them. But then this kind of gets back to, you know, Yahweh created the sun, moon, and stars for seasons and times and all these other, and, you know, so it seems like they have a play, a useful play and knowledge for us, but at the same point, there is a, a, like a negative aspect to some of this stuff that maybe he was teaching. I don't know. What do you think? Well, what about, um, as you're talking, it just came to me, what, what if it's just about, like, in connection with what Isaiah was teaching men about warfare, you know, um, well, no, maybe, maybe not. Um, I'm just thinking, like you know, a, a, a navy on the in the navy or anyone that that's helping navigate a ship. Many times they'll use the constellations when they open water because they'll some navigate. So this could be for you know used for expanding, you know, traveling to different lands on at night by sea and helping them expand their godlessness to other places, right? Because we knew that the giants were seafaring people. Yeah by far. And so yeah. this could help them take that, that bad corruption behavior other places around the world. Yeah. So, that, that's a plausible theory, Sean. Um, and then Arachiel taught the signs of the earth. I'm not sure what that's about. Um, I don't know exactly what the signs of the earth are. And Shumziel, the signs of the sun. And Soriel, the course of the moon. So, you know, we got, we got some angels I mentioned here. Which is interesting because some of these angels have very similar names, right? They end with with the word God, or the idea of God with L E L. Then other ones don't at all. <laughs> and I always wondered why. Now keep in mind, Ken, and I also want the viewers, you know, you're still with us at this point in the program. Bless you, and hopefully that you know the conversation is still entertaining. But this idea here is that um, even at we're reading about these guys, and I don't want people to be, you know, ever to be put in with fear. Now, this stuff was given for edification so that we can understand who our enemy is. But more than anything, I don't want people to remember, we're going to read about this, how, you know, as we read in Chapter 6 last time, there were 200 of these guys, okay? Not 40,000, not 2 million. There was 200 of them. 
So of all the myriads and myriads of myriads of angels mentioned in Scripture that's around the throne of the Father, that's in the, the realm above the firmament with the Father, um, a number that's been calculated to be something ridiculous into like the trillions, only 200 of them were crazy, okay? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like only 200 of them decided to do this mischief. So that's a very, very small you know, rate of rebellion. Um, and these 200 were dealt with severely to where it was left with apparently just one for a while. <laughs> so, um, and he's causing a lot of problems. But I just don't want people to think that this is like, you know, that that God is just apparently the most horrible boss in the world to work for, right? No, no, let's keep this in perspective. There's trillions of angels that still love him and walk in his ways and are living with him in his realm above that that uh, are completely happy with the way they were created. Yeah. They're completely happy with what's prophesied for mankind. They're completely happy with everything that went down. Only a couple crazy ones. And yeah. if we're taking what we just talked about with Azazel possibly influencing his fellow watchers to come and take wives when they didn't really need wives, maybe they were content before they were deceived as well. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I just want to let people, I just hope people keep this in perspective. Yeah, it's not all doom and gloom with the, yeah. the angel kind. We're going to see in the next chapter, which I think we're going to go through over our, uh, our following episode, that there are some good, prominent angels that care about us and cared about you know the inhabitants of the earth when all of this corruption was taking place and they were they were petitioning yahweh to let's do something about this you know this is your creation you love them and, and there's some horrible things going on in the earth we need to interject now and we're going to learn about these guys in the next episode and god says okay i'll flood him <laughs> <laughs> yeah flood the bathtub we need to do something father okay open the firmament yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, what did, we, we didn't mean that. <laughs> you want to do what? <laughs> so like, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's some beautiful imagery there yeah. and uh, foreshadowing we get for the future. But um, all right, so that was chapter eight, guys. Uh, and as always, if you have comments or questions, leave them in, in the, you know, below in the comments section. And uh, two of the best questions, Ken and I decided we're, we'll try to pull out each week two of the best questions asked in the comments. And then in the following episode, we want to try to address those if possible. So, um, yeah, you're welcome to leave your questions and comments down below. All right. So thank you for joining us for this episode. It's our second episode of Honor of Kings. We're dissecting into Enoch further. And um, we, we talked about a lot of fun stuff in this episode. And uh, a lot of good conversation can be created from it. And hopefully, if, if nothing else, we've encouraged you to dig into these things yourself and compare them with the canon of 66 because uh, we're seeing these, these thematic concepts being introduced that we see play out in the rest of Scripture. So uh, thank you for joining us, everyone. Ken. Yeah, anything? guys, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us again for uh, Episode 2. And we hope that the conversation was tantalizing and that it's going to excite you for what's to come because there's going to be a lot more to come. And uh, <laughs> apologize if we... We were lingering too much at times on certain things. It's just there's so much to talk about. This book is incredible. And, and as we you know, unfold the next chapters, um, you'll see that there's a lot more to discuss in those as well. So thank you, guys. We love you. And we look forward to your, your questions. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next week.
Hi, I'm Sean Griffin. Welcome to Kingdom in Context.